And we'll be looking at all of chapter 2. Now before we begin, last week we got left on a cliffhanger, wondering what's going to happen next in the story of Naomi and Ruth. I want to just remind us of three things from last week that are intimately connected with the story this morning. And as we left off in Ruth, Naomi, the mother-in-law, she had just returned to Bethlehem after 10 years of famine. With her is her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who has chosen to show loving, covenant faithfulness or or a commitment to go with her mother-in-law. And as they uh, end chapter 1, or as we come to uh, an end of chapter 1, Naomi arrives in Bethlehem and immediately she says to all of those who begin to recognize her and recognize that Naomi has come home after 10 years, she says, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter. And the second thing that I want on the front of our minds is that Naomi attributes what has taken place in her life. And if you were not with us last week, she lost her husband. She's lost both of her sons. They've... Uh, They have passed away, providing no heirs. And Naomi is experiencing tragedy that is beyond comprehension. And Naomi attributes her circumstances to the hand of God. She recognizes God's sovereignty. And that is why she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, call me bitter. And she says, because God is sovereign all these things, and this is the hand he's given to me. But just as the story ends, recall that Ruth and Naomi had arrived in Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest. First harvest in 10 years. 10 years of famine, and this is the first harvest. And this gives us a little glimmer of hope. Last week, Alex mentioned a quote by William Cowper, and in This quote says about God's providence, it says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, or basically our own human wisdom, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. God has reversed the famine. And the question that we're left and invited by the author to to begin to try to connect is this. Can God also reverse the circumstances of Naomi and Ruth's life? He's providentially reversed the famine. There is now harvest. What will God do in the lives of Naomi and Ruth? And that is where we pick up today in the text. So let's read Ruth chapter 2. We have read last week about untold tragedy. This week, let's begin And see what happens as they return for the barley harvest. Ruth 2 verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the fields after the reapers. And she happened to come up to the part of a field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. 
And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman, who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, to go to use the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn? Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you would take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her and said, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before? The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your own servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here, eat some bread. Dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed her the roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves. Do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. And she also brought out and gave to her the food that she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law, with whom she had worked, and said, The man's name, with whom I work today, is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with the young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Let's pray. 
God, this is your word to us. We humbly approach you now and ask for you to give us wisdom, give us insight, give us hearts to understand and respond to your word this morning. Amen. Well, this morning I want to focus our time as we study Ruth chapter 2 on a doctrine that is mentioned nowhere in the story today. But it is seen in every part of this story. In fact, the doctrine that we are going to explore today is mentioned nowhere by name in Scripture. But yet, Scripture is filled, all of its pages, with this doctrine. Anybody have a guess what this doctrine may be? It's the doctrine of God's providence. And the goal for our sermon this morning is that as you leave the study of Ruth 2, is that you might know what God's providence means, and that you might know what God's providence means in your everyday life. Two goals for our sermon today, two goals for our study of Ruth. That when you leave, you might know what providence means, and that you might know how God's providence applies to your everyday life. So as we look at Ruth, chapter 2, verses 1 to 23, we see, if I were to put a, put a title on this, it's God's providence on display. A case study in how God provides and protects through the kindness of a redeemer. I think I'm a little bit old school. I think uh, in older days, they had really long titles to books. And I am a fan of also having longer titles to sermons. Title of the sermon, God's providence on display A case study and how God provides and protects through the kindness of a redeemer. The way that we will divide our time and our study this morning is in just two simple ways. First, we want to take a look at God's providence in Ruth. So we're going to go through verses 1 to 23. I want to just point out to you God's providence in Ruth. And secondly, I want to speak about, I want to move to where a practical application of providence. I want to talk about God's providence and you. So simple little outline this morning, God's providence in Ruth and God's providence in you. So let's begin, let's take a look at God's providence in Ruth. And the first place that we see, very specifically, the author pointing us to this thing that we call providence, in verse 3. Notice in verse 3 it says, So she set out, this was after Ruth had asked Naomi to give her permission to go and glean in the fields. It says, So she set out and gleaned in the fields after the reapers. And then notice this phrase. It says, She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. Now, once upon a time, I took Hebrew. I am no Hebrew scholar, but I am smart enough to read commentaries that are smarter than me. And one of the things that it points out about this phrase is that the author uses what we might think of as double accidental language. If we were to put a modern phrase, a modern English phrase on it that says, and she happened to come, it might sound like this. This is how the Hebrew author originally wrote. And Ruth chanced upon a chance in the part of the field that belonged to Boaz. Or we might say, 
by a, pure, by a stroke of pure luck, Ruth just so happened to arrive at the field belonging to Boaz. Or possibly a third rendition. As luck would have it, Ruth stumbled into the field of Boaz. The expression that the author of Ruth uses here in the Hebrew is to clearly underscore, if we use that language, if we were telling a story and we'd say, by just pure luck, I happen to stumble upon. What we are using as we begin to add those phrases together is, the chances that this happened are so minimal that we are forced to believe it's not accident or happenstance that we see something bigger clearly at work. And in this phrasing in verse 3, we begin to see the author, in a sense, tempting us to believe. You try to believe that what's going to happen in the rest of the story is an accident, a chance upon a chance. And so, when we look at Ruth chapter 2, we are invited by the author to not believe that this is accident or happenstance. We're invited to see... God's providence. Now, I can tell you, I know this interpretation is true because in Ruth chapter 2, verse 20, so same chapter, when Ruth, at the end of the story, Naomi, uh, Ru, excuse me, Naomi is responding to Ruth coming back from the barley harvest with an amazing amount of barley. And what does Ruth say? Ruth says, you know, who took notice of you? And then she says, may he be blessed by the Lord. And then notice this phrase, whose kindness has not forsaken the living of or the dead. Who has ultimately provided for Ruth and Naomi? Naomi says, hey, this gentleman, this Boaz who blessed you, may he be blessed by the Lord. Because what does she see? She sees his kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. That phrase living or the dead, it's meaning the living, Naomi and Ruth. The dead, it's the fact that God has not forgotten her husband and his two sons who have died without any heirs. And so, Naomi clearly sees this as God's providence. Now, we've been using that word providence, and the first thing I want to do before we really launch out to to look more in Ruth is, what does providence actually mean? I'll give you a second. You don't have to raise your hand. In your mind, how would you define this? Work. Let the wheels start turning. How would you define providence? Maybe you're thinking, I don't even really know how to define providence. Well, let me give you a little help. We said one goal of this sermon is that you would know what God's providence means. The word providence is built from two words. It actually comes from a similar stem to the word provide. The Latin word pro means forward. Or on behalf of. And the Latin word vide is to see. So to see forward. Now, you might think that the word providence would mean exactly that. To see forward. But it doesn't. What it actually means is to supply what is needed. To give sustenance or to support. So if we were to take a a big Bible picture of what this word providence actually means. It means the act of purposely providing for, sustaining, and governing the world. 
God's purposeful providing for, sustaining, or governing the world. Now, let me just um, mention as one other theological word that might come into your mind. Sovereignty. Sovereignty. How is sovereignty and providence different? Well, sovereignty is just the fact that God rules and reigns over everything. As the king and as creator, God is absolutely sovereign. God does what he wants, when he wants, and how he wants. But one thing that sovereignty doesn't imply that we automatically associate with God. Do you know that when somebody has absolute sovereignty and uses it in the wrong way, we call a dictator? Sovereignty actually doesn't imply whether you use that sovereignty for good or for evil. Providence shows that God is purposeful in his sovereignty, and that's why it's unique. And so when I said that, you'll notice that sovereignty is everywhere taught in the Bible, even that word. But God's providence is nowhere. That word never comes up, but yet we see it again and again and again. And it's probably one of the most practical doctrines that you uh, could could ever want to grasp in your Christian life. The providence of God. So I gave you a more biblical definition. Let me give you an easier definition. This is a definition by a pastor by the name of John Piper. And he says of this meaning, when we look at the Latin, of uh, to see forward, uh, and uh, well, to see forward, he says, think of providence as this phrase in the, in the English idiom. I'll see to it. If you're in a conversation and you were to say to somebody, maybe you're, ha- you're, you're uh, on tomorrow, Monday, you're in your meeting with work. You're having discussion about what needs to be done. And your boss says, uh, hey, uh, who, who is going to make sure we, we, we book the hotel room? And you were to raise your hand and say, I will see to it. What would that imply? It would imply that you will take care of that task, that you will see it through, that you will take it on, that you will provide for, that you will do what is needed, that you are owning that. And when we think of providence, maybe the best English idiom, if you were to use a very simple phrase, would be, God will see to it. God will see to it. It means that God will take care of getting things done. Everything that God desires to happen in our world when God wants it to happen in the world, and the way that God wants it to happen in the world, guess what? God will see to it. Very simple understanding of providence. Now, you probably know this already because we often use verses, very familiar verses, that teach God's providence, but it doesn't include that word. Let me give you a few. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. What is that teaching? God's providence. That God is in control of everything. We are asked to trust God. Why? Not to lean on our own understanding. Not, but to simply acknowledge God. And what does it say? That he will make your path straight. What is it believing that God will do? That God will direct you in your path. Romans eight twenty eight says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those that are called according to his purpose. What works together for good? All things work together for good who are called, for those who are called according to God's purpose. What is that teaching? 
God's providence, that God is in control of all things. Otherwise, that statement can't be true. How could God know all things work together for your good? How could God guarantee all things work together for your good unless in his sovereignty, which means he has the right to control all things, that God is working behind all things for his purposes, which God says are for your good. Here's another verse, 11, uh, Romans 11.36. Uh, it's not up there, but I added one after I had prepared the sermon. So here's one you have to take on faith. 11.36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. How could things be from him and through him and to him if God was not absolutely sovereign and also God was not working out his providence? It's impossible. Those are three verses that you already know quite well. All of them teach providence, but yet the word providence is not there. But yet this is a doctrine that Ruth is going to invite us to see. So I want to transition. We've talked about a definition of providence. I've pointed out just a few well-known scriptures that you know that teach God's providence. Now I want to look at Ruth chapter 2. Now you know what providence is, we're going to see providence all over. We're going to see God's thumbprint all over this story. So let's look, I'm going to really literally go verse by verse and just point out some of the many ways that we see God's providence in the book of Ruth, and specifically chapter 2. At the end of chapter 1, we already began here. Naomi recognizes what? God's sovereignty over her situation over the death of her husband and her two sons. At the same time, we see God providentially bring them to Bethlehem. When? At the time of the first barley harvest. That's God's providence. In verse 2, we, sh- we see that Ruth, and you can be looking at your scriptures, have the, the scriptures in front of you. I'm just going to be working verse by verse we see that Ruth is going to not sit down and rest after their long trip to Bethlehem. But Ruth is going to want to begin to go and glean in the field. She wants to go provide for her mother-in-law. And she recognizes that in order for this to happen, what does she need? Ruth knows she needs favor. Ruth goes out looking for the favor of some landowner who are actually let her glean. And so we see that when they arrive, immediately Ruth moves to the fields and she's going to look for God's favor. Now, just a, a quick note on gleaning. You're gonna, gleaning is all over this passage. I don't know how much you know the, what gleaning is. Gleaning is the right of those who are poor or those who are destitute or those who are what we call sojourners or basically foreigners living in a, a foreign land to go out into the fields of those who were uh, in Israel and to be able to pick up some of the loose uh, grain that was left in the fields. In fact, Leviticus chapter 19 and Deuteronomy 24, God specifically puts a, a law among his people that would provide for the, the poor, the destitute, the orphan, the widow, or the sojourner. And so we see that glean itself is a providence of God. God is working among his people to show his goodness and his glory and to provide for those who are less fortunate. And he 
commands that in their very laws as a nation, that they would have a right to glean. Now, the way the law was supposed to be kept is that when uh, a, an owner of a field would harvest, that he would not harvest all the way to the, to the edges of his field or to leave some standing grain in the corners. In addition to that, and it wasn't much, but it was enough that somebody might be able to collect from a field and have enough food to provide for themselves for one meal, for that day. In addition to the corners or the edges of the fields, what it meant for, for the people to have the right to glean was that when after, uh, imagine the field, and you would have the men with a sickle. The men would have a sickle, they would go through, they would make a cut. They would take what they cut in one arm, they would lay it on the ground, and then there would be women who came behind them working the fields, and they would tie up the sheaves of wheat or barley. And as you can imagine, that there might be one, uh, one grain, or not one grain, one uh, stalk of wheat or one stalk of barley here and there. And God says, do not go behind yourself and get the, the stalks that got left behind. Leave them for those who are coming to glean. So if you were going to glean in the field, you would be provided for in that if the person was a noble person and actually implementing the law, that they would leave the edges of their field uh, unharvested and that they would also leave behind whatever was left from when they were tying up the bundles. This is what Ruth is asking permission to do. But Ruth also knows that at this time, remember our first sermon, we're in the time of the judges where everybody does what's right in their own eyes. There is this, this clear perception that the vast majority of landowners are not doing this. And so you can imagine that there's, in a sense, competition for the few fields that are. And so Ruth, as she arrives, recognizes God's provision has made the possibility that Naomi, my, my mother-in-law, and myself might provide for ourselves, even though we just arrived and have nothing and have no funds and have nothing for ourselves. But God in his provision has graciously provided a rule and a law that makes this provision in Israel. Now here's the thing. She has to find someone who does it and she has to ask permission of the workers that she might glean that day. In verse 3, we see that Ruth happens, this is where we already talked about, she just happens upon the field of Boaz. Boaz's arrival that day in verse 4 is also providential because the landowner normally didn't work in his fields. It says Boaz came from Bethlehem that day. And so on the day that Ruth goes out and at the very field where she asks and finds favor happens to be this Boaz who is from the clan of Elimelech. If you're not sure what that means, go back to Sermon 1 uh, and take a listen. Here's Boaz, a relative of Naomi's dead husband. He's arriving at the field, and it's the very same time, it's the very same day as Ruth arriving in his fields. We see God's providence in verse 7 that Ruth really worked hard. It said, in fact, from the moment she got there until the moment uh, that Boaz arrives, the foreman is looking at them, and he's recognizing how hard she's working. You know what's the first thing that the foreman says? By the way, Ruth is a Moabite. She's a foreigner. Foreigners are, uh, in any country and at any time, we tend to look down 
at others who are not like us. But you know what happened? This foreigner, or, uh, this foreigner found favor in the eyes of the foreman. And the first thing he tells Boaz is this. She hasn't taken a break. She has worked from the time she got here till now. Ruth finds favor in the eyes of the foreman. That is the providence of God. In verses 14 through 16, we see God's providence and Ruth being provided for by Boaz. What's Boaz's immediate response? Actually, let's go back. Look at verses 8 through 13. One of the first things that we see in Ruth was that, did you notice that Boaz had already heard her story? You know that Boaz had never met Ruth? But because the story of Naomi had to deal with a relative from his clan, Boaz, before he ever meets Ruth, has ever even seen her with his own eyes, knows the story. There is a Moabite young widow who actually chose to commit herself to following her mother-in-law, to leave her family, to leave her lands, and commit to the God of Israel, and to move here. And here's what we know. It impressed Boaz. He had a favorable impression of Ruth before ever he meets her. And guess what? That day, Ruth was out in his fields, and he left Bethlehem, and he arrives in his fields, and his foreman says, here is a hard worker. And Boaz arrives. He's a man who has left his field in a place to be gleaned, which is the only way that, uh, that Ruth would ever want to glean in his fields. And now he's in a position to bless her. What does he do? He begins to say, hey, you don't go to another field. You stay right here. Don't go into those other fields. Why? Because the men who work those fields, they're not all noble. You could be abused. You could be taken advantage of. Stay here with my workers. And then he does something amazing. Did you see how he invites her to the dinner table? What a risk for a man of, of status to invite a Moabite young girl to come and eat with his workers because that was not a normal privilege. He also says you can drink from the vessels. God pours out amazing grace and favor to Ruth through Boaz. God's providence. Why did he want to do it? Because Ruth had blessed one of his clansmen, or or, or the wife of one of his clansmen. And he had the ability. And so let's move to the end of the story because we see this happy providence where as we're coming to a, a close in this chapter, Ruth finishes her day, and it says something very interesting. I had to look this up. It says that she, she finished with about an ephah of barley. Now, you might not have any clue how much that is. I didn't have any clue how much that is, so I looked it up. About 22 liters of barley. 22 liters. They said they don't, it's hard to know, but they think that's between 29 and 50 pounds. That's going to be at least about 20 kilos. Can you imagine Ruth coming home with a huge sack of barley that big? And you can imagine Naomi's response because here's two ladies who just left a land of famine and they arrive with no provision. And Ruth asks in the morning, she says, let me go, mother, to her mother-in-law. She goes out, she finds God's favor and she comes home in the evening, not only with a sack of grain that is almost 50 pounds, But she also has extra food, which she pulls out and said, by the way, they gave me lunch. They asked me to her table. And I'm bringing back what I didn't eat. Can you see how God's providence is woven throughout this? Now, let me just give you one more thing. In verse 20, it says, 
Naomi notes that, by the way, that Boaz, whose field you work in, did you notice? She said, uh, whose field did you work in? Because Ruth doesn't have any clue who Boaz is. And she says, I've worked in the field of a guy named Boaz. And Ruth immediately tells her, that's one of our relatives. That's one of our clan. And by the way, he's a redeemer. Let me just tell you what a redeemer is so you, you understand. Here's another way we see God's providence. A redeemer is a relative who by the law has the right to purchase lands to prevent those lands in your clan from falling in the hands of people outside of your clan. It's, it's that simple. Maybe the, 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 the most important thing or the most important uh, identification in your tribe, so the tribe we're talking about is the tribe of Judah, but the clan was basically all the people who came from the same descendants. And the clan we're talking about is Elimelech. And when uh, Elimelech, or excuse me, uh, uh, the, 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 the clan we're talking about is uh, the, the Ephratites. And Elimelech, the father, it gets a little bit confusing, but bear with me, died. His sons died and there were no heirs. Naomi arrives back in Bethlehem with no heirs, which means there's no one to pass on the family lands to. So this Boaz, who is just amazingly provided, who just happens to meet Ruth, and Ruth, who just happens into his field, happens to be of the very same clan, and not only of the same clan, but he is the cl- one of the closest relatives, one of the ones who can be a redeemer. And a redeemer is the one who has the ability to buy back. To buy back land, to, to be able to uh, take the place of a, uh, of a husband who has no children. He can, he can uh, provide heirs for a childless widow, but this is the Boaz that we meet. Now, I tell all you that that story that we see of God's providence, and here's where I want to leave us. What might God be doing in all of that providence? Naomi and Ruth have returned. God has providentially rewarded Ruth's loyalty, responded to her kindness with kindness of his own through this Boaz, through a redeemer. We have a young widow sitting around being passed roasted barley by an elderly landowner, two people who shouldn't be around the same table, but a man who was a potential redeemer and a widow who was poor, destitute, and childless and God brings them together in this story. What do you think God might be doing? Well, what God's going to do, I have to wait till next week because that is chapter 3. But here's where I want to go in the closing minutes. I told you the first part is I wanted you to see God's providence in Ruth. The second part I told you of the sermon is I want you to talk or I want to talk about God's providence and you. It's fine to see the providence in Ruth, but what does God's providence mean in my life? Well, I want to look at God's providence in you in two ways. I want you to see that God's providence means that God is working for you and God is working in you. God's providence in you and, ampersand, means God is working for you and God is working in you. Let me show you what it looks like to have God's providence working in your life. Look at Ruth, chapter 2, verse 11 to 12. 
This is Boaz. Boaz is speaking to Ruth, and he says, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and your mother in your native land and came to a people that you do not know. Notice this. He says, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Notice this phrase, Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. If you noticed, our overall title for Ruth was Finding Restoration and redemption under God's wings. Where do we get that phrase? It comes from right here. And this picture of finding refuge under God's wings, I thought it was amazing. Carrie, you picked a psalm out, Psalm 46. One of the first things it says is, God is our refuge and strength. This was a very important term for God's people. This idea of being under the wings of God, it's a picture of a tiny bird. Have you ever seen a mother bird with her, her little babies, those little chicklets? It doesn't matter what kind of bird, whether it's a hen or whether it's an eagle. One of the things that a mother bird does is after that birth, she protects those little birds and she gets them under her wings. And under her wings is where she protects them. And then also it's the place where she provides for them. Oftentimes, one eagle will sit on the nest and the other will fly away. And they will go get food. And what happens? Mom lifts up her arm and under her protection, the little chicks are fed. That's the very same picture that we are told that God, what does it look like for God to be a refuge? How does God providentially provide? It looks like provision and protection underneath God's wings. It's exactly what Boaz does for Ruth. Ruth finds Boaz's field. And what does Boaz do? He has the ability to provide for her, which he does, and he also protects her. He says, do not go to anybody else's field. And then he actually, so he is, he is the fulfillment of his own prayer. He tells Ruth, may God provide for you, provide refuge under his wings. Psalm 36, 7 and 9 are a beautiful picture. It says, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we do see light. So what does it mean? What, is, what about God's providence in you? Well, God's providence means that God is working for you. He is working to be a refuge for you. And what do you find with God as your refuge? God's provision and God's protection. God is actively working to be a refuge for you. In the same way that God was at work in the life of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, God is actively at work for you. The same God who was working out his his perfect plan for Ruth and Naomi and Boaz is the same God who is actively working in you. The same providence that God shows to his people then is the same providence that God shows to his people now. The story of God's providence continues in you, in your life. It is not something like a museum where we look at God's providence once upon a time. It is happening now. And under God's wings, you will find provision and protection. One thing just about that provision and protection, I found a great quote by a man by the name of Obadiah Sedgwick. With a name like that, it's got to be good. (laughs) Obadiah Sedgwick. And he says this. Now, when you think about God's providence... He says this, no good man ever lacked anything that was good for him. I may lack a thing which is good, 
but not which is good for me. And then he quotes Psalm 84.1, The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them who walk uprightly. Just a note about God's providence. God's providence is not you getting every good thing. You need to understand that God's providence is both and. God's providence is only not when he blesses us. Remember when we saw, we saw that Naomi saw God's sovereignty and providence in the death of her husband and the death of her sons. You have to take both together. Providence is a long game. It's not a single photo from your life or a single moment. God's providence is trusting the long game. And when you look at that, God will not withhold a single good thing that is good for you. He may not give you every good thing that you see others getting, but he will not withhold a single good thing that is good for you. Let's just talk about God's providence working in you, and we'll close. I used earlier... Romans 8.28, to show you one of the ways or one of the many verses that teach God's providence. Let's remind ourselves. It says in Romans 8.28, we know that all things uh, work, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now let me add verse 29. Because 29, if, if that shows you God's providence, verse 29 shows you God's purpose in his providence. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So it's very clear that the goal of God's providence is to produce something in you. So God's providence is not only doing something for you. He's a refuge. He's provision and protection. God's providence is doing something in you. And what is he doing? He's working to conform you to the image of his Son. And what was the relationship between Jesus and the Father? Jesus trusted the Father perfectly for his provision, for his protection. Jesus trusted that God would act as a good father. So in the story of Ruth, God was working to produce in Naomi and Ruth and in Boaz a willingness to trust him in all of life's circumstances. And God is working in the same way in you. I had a teacher when I took the, the book of Romans as a class, and he said, it's kind of like baking a cake. He said, if you were to take any of the single ingredients of a cake, he said, if you would just take a, 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 a handful of flour and eat it, he said, it, it wouldn't taste that good. If you take a pinch of salt, if you take the baking soda, if you took all the elements that go into making a cake, he said, they don't all taste good. But one thing that's needed to make a good cake or a good pie is always, you know, nobody's going to take a, 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 a spoonful of butter or, a lar- or some lard or some fat, the things that make a pie crust taste good. But here's what we know. In the same way that we put ingredients together to make a cake, God is using all of the events of our life and moving them together. This is the promise of Romans 8.28 is that all things work for the good. God is going to take all of the different events, all of the different ingredients, and what he is doing is God is arranging them for his perfect timing and his perfect plan and his perfect ways so that he might show himself to be a refuge, providing for and protecting you in every season of life. And let me just tell you, some of those snapshots, it's not that clear, is it? And some of those snapshots, it's really difficult. But providence takes the big picture, and it says, 
I'm not going to focus on this one season. I'm not going to focus on what I wanted for good that God didn't give. But I'm going to take a look at the long game and trust that whatever God is doing is for my good. So here's our conclusion this morning. How can you respond to God's providence today? I want to invite you to pray to trust God as your refuge. I don't know what season you're in, but I want to invite you to pray that you would see God as your refuge. I want you to pray to trust that simple definition that God will see to it. God will see to it. I want you to pray and trust that God will provide and protect. And if you do, here's three blessings that we know we will see when we learn to trust God's providence. Patience and adversity, thankfulness and prosperity, and an unshakable faith in every season of life. If you learn to trust God's providence, here's what you will find. Because I don't know whether you're in the season of adversity or whether you're in the season of prosperity, or maybe even in between. Patience and adversity, thankfulness and prosperity, and an unshakable faith in every season of life. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the story of Ruth, and we thank you how through the story of Ruth, you're reminding us of your faithful desires to do good for us. God, you are a refuge. You provide us with provision and protection. And we pray that by your grace, our eyes will be opened and our hearts will be opened to want to trust in your providence. That we would have patience in adversity, thankfulness and prosperity, and an unshakable faith in every season of life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.